When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to episode 218 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the great Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. How's it going, Dan? Busy, 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 but it's a busy and fun deviation from Formula Week on TV's Top 5. That's right. We promised you at the end of last week's episode that we were working on something special. And boy, did we deliver. At least I think so, Dan. <laughs> boy, howdy. Yes. Boy, howdy. We did absolutely do something different this episode. And as with all different things, I assume some people will think, no, no, no. Go back to telling us the headlines of each week. But other people will be like, ooh, cool thing. So I hope most people will think, ooh, cool thing. I definitely think. Ooh, cool thing. So, Dan, why don't, why don't you introduce and tell the kids what they're going to listen to this week? Yes. Instead of our normal five headlines, this week is going to be a one-topic podcast. Oh, yeah. On May 9th, days after the Writers Guild went out on strike against Hollywood's studios and streamers, Rutherford Falls creator and former TV's Top 5 guest, Sierra Teller Ornelas, shared a thread about her first writing job on ABC's late and great Happy Endings. In the thread, she opened up about how, over the show's three seasons, there were 23 writers, and 21 of them went on to become showrunners in their own right. With that, Happy Endings can now be considered a case study in the benefits of having a sprawling writer's room. And with the Writers Guild heading into its eighth week in its battle over such issues as residuals, the size and span of writer's rooms, we're thrilled to be reuniting 14 writers from Happy Endings who will join us to discuss the valuable lessons they learned on the show, which helped them become showrunners as they now look to train television's next generation. Thanks so much, everyone, for joining us. So this is going to be a challenging conversation for our listeners to keep up with. So if you could, let's start with everyone sharing their name, the roles that you guys had on Happy Endings, and any other notable credits that came afterward. David Casp, uh, creator, uh, and just a lot of stuff nobody has seen after this show. And this <laughs> continues to be the only one anyone ever mentions, which is great, but also really heartbreaking. Hi, Jonathan Groff, uh, showrunner with David and Josh Bicell, uh in seasons two and three or something like that. I forget when that happened. But um, yeah, I w worked on Blackish after this, which was really cool. But this is very near and dear to my heart. And Sierra's thread about the room made me kind of go like, we we did a good thing. So uh, and I'm anxious to hear everybody's stories. 
Hey, I'm Josh Bicell. I was a writer on the show and at some point ended up uh, running it with Jonathan and David. Um, and I have a show on Hulu right now called Solar Opposites. That's season premiere is about to, uh, season four is going to premiere. And yeah, like David said, a lot of other stuff. The best thing about the strike is running into people that you worked eight episodes on a show 15 <laughs> years ago with. Um, but Obviously, the show is very near and dear to my heart, and I love all these people. And and um, the podcast is is making its way closer to coming out. So I know a lot of you guys were, on, but uh, that is uh, that is going to happen if I could break some news on the Hollywood Reporter. Yeah, Dave, Sierra Alcianchik, have a head initial, and kind of just cheat. My name is Sierra Teller Ornelas. I am a member of the Navajo Nation, um, and I uh, was a Disney fellow on the first season of happy endings and then i left a story editor um and then after that i've worked on superstore brooklyn 99 uh selfie and then i co-created and show ran rutherford falls friend is penny uh i think i was supervising producer by the end of the run um definitely was the only black guy by the beginning and end of the run but uh, but uh, uh, went on to Brooklyn Nine Nine and uh, Insecure on HBO. Lon Zimmett uh, came on, I think, middle of season two as maybe an exec story editor, uh, and after that, well, now I'm on Night Court, so that's fun. And uh, <laughs> you know, created some shows no one watched. <laughs> LA to Vegas, outmatched. You know, I, I watched fun. them. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> Uh, there was one of them <laughs> got a review in the Hollywood Reporter that suggested everyone who put that show on the air at Fox should be fired. So that was... <laughs> okay, uh, okay, full, welcome home. Full disclaimer, that review was by uh, by our colleague Tim Goodman, uh, who is not, okay. on, who is not <laughs> on this podcast right now. He's a coward. Did you read all our reviews before coming on, Daniel? You had that one really <laughs> teed up. <laughs> He's been waiting to drag her. Hi, I'm Dan Rubin. Uh, I came on with Lon uh, middle of season two as uh, his the guy who drove him to work mostly. Uh, <laughs> lost. Uh, and I think we uh, uh, then after that went on and worked on a Michael J. Fox show and Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Uh, and now uh, uh, work on Night Court uh, with Lon and Leela. Dan, you created Night Court. I developed Night Court. I'm the showrunner. Uh, <laughs> Brian Holdwiggy uh, created it. He's he's no, no longer with us. Cool thing to bring up on a <laughs> Hi, Daniel Libman. Um, I was a staff writer on the show along with my brother. Um, and we've gone on to work on a lot of shows after this one, but nothing as fun as this. And uh, Vicel predicted it. It was never going to be as good as we had it. <laughs> he screamed it at us, really. Yeah. On a daily yeah. basis. Yeah. 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 He made sure. For a daily it's, I, it's how I we disagree. started and ended the day. Mm -hmm. I was in some good rooms after this one, so. I had some really okay. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. I'm just saying, I had some really good times with some really good rooms. So. Jump lucky. on a podcast yeah. with them, Sarah. Yeah. You're a very lucky person. <laughs> 
Yeah, Daniel basically said it. We started off as staff writers. Uh, we went, we moved up uh, every year, and then we worked on a bunch of stuff. I would say maybe um, that we also co-created a show uh, called Champagne Ale that's on Hulu now with David Casp and our friend Jordan Cahan. Um, and yeah, this was uh, probably the most fun we had doing this. Hi, I'm Jackie Clark. I started. I was season two a staff writer. Um, and I, my most notable credit is probably the non-live season of Undateable. And <laughs> I also did Superstore and I co-ran um, a show for Netflix called Blockbuster. Amy. Uh, hi, I uh, came on season three of Happy Endings as Jonathan Gross' assistant. Uh, my job was basically just like laughing at everything everyone on here said. Uh, one of the best starter jobs of my life. Uh, I learned you could be kind and also lead a good room. Um, and after leaving Happy Endings, uh, I worked on the Michael J. Fox show, Silicon Valley and Insecure with Prentice, which was funny because on the first day of Happy Endings, he came in and said, another one, another one, and ran at me and gave me a hug. So uh, yeah, his claim of being the only Black person is wrong. I was also there. <laughs> I'm Leela Strong. I came on season one as a story editor and probably left a co-producer. Or Yeah, that makes sense. Um, after that, I worked on Michael J. Fox show with Dan, Lon, and Amy and Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt and Veep. And I worked on Blackish with Groff as my boss and Blockbuster with Jackie as my boss. And now I work on Night Court with Dan as my boss. So I have benefited from all the showrunners to come out of the show. <laughs> uh, I'm Hillary Winston. I came on season two, I think, as a co-EP. And then season three was a consulting producer. Um, and then uh, it was a, this was a life raft from community. Um, and so everybody <laughs> was my therapist, my post-community therapist on the show. Um, and then I went on to develop Bad Teacher for CBS. Um, which nobody remembers but my family, and then some other shows and um, pilots that nobody will ever see. The Libmans were on uh, Bad Teacher as well. Um, and then most recently, I was on Crapopolis uh, for Fox, and I ran Goosebumps for Disney+. Plus. Hi, Jason Berger. I was the uh, season one showrunner assistant to Groff and Casp. And then uh, when I sucked at that, I got moved over to writer assistant. <laughs> uh, I got to writer assistant season two and season three. And then uh show got canceled. And then I went to work for Lon on LA to Vegas as a staff writer. And then I went to work for the Libmans and Casp on Champagne Ill as a staff writer. And then I co-created uh, the big show show on Netflix with Josh Bicell, who forgot to mention that. Clearly thinks about it. <laughs> so thank you again everyone for joining us and and i do want to start with sierra because as i mentioned your may 9th twitter thread did inspire this reunion in this your thread you noted that there were 17 writers in season one of happy endings seven of them staff writers including yourself and that it was dubbed america's next top staff writer one of the key issues that the WGA is striking for is minimum room size. Let's get started with some of the key issues here. Why is the WGA fighting for room size guarantee and the end of the so-called mini room? And how does that really change how you came up, you know, when compared to happy endings, as you said? Yeah, when I started, um, 
there were so there were a lot of staff writers, but there were also just a lot of upper levels that loved to teach and kind of show us how to do it. We had a lot of sort of like big brother, big sister folks who um, allowed us. I mean, even though like it was Cass' first job in TV and it was my first job in TV, there was like a whole slew of people who had had done it a bunch and were like excited to tell us how to do it. So it was a little bit like a summer camp where even if it wasn't your episode, you know, shows are being made while while we were writing. And so you could show up at like 6 a.m. and and pitch jokes in the morning. You could have like some like FaceTime with the showrunner. If you stayed late, you could kind of like hop on a rewrite or whatever. Um, and and through that process of doing 22 episodes, you, by the end of it, were able to run a show. Um, not, not run a show, but you knew like how to produce an episode of television. And then as I moved up uh, onto other shows, the, the staffs got smaller. And then a lot of the people I hired on Rutherford had only been in like mini rooms. And so a lot of them didn't have any onset experience. So they would pitch like wild things, you know? And you'd be like, yeah, that's, that's not producible. There's like no way you could actually make that in five days or whatever. And then you kind of realize like, oh, you've never been on set. Like, you don't know how exactly this works. And so we worked on season two to, to do the happy endings model where we would start production halfway through the season so that we could make sure some of the writers at least got to be on set for their episodes. But on happy endings, like I was in every production meeting. I got to go to like the costumes. I got to go through every process. Um, and probably before I should have been, like, there were definitely meetings where I was like, I don't know the answer to that question, but I'm going to find it for you. And, and so kind of getting thrown into that fire, what I didn't realize until after I left was I had this sort of wealth of knowledge and what's happening now with, with these small orders and small rooms is you have a whole staff who's been writing, they're moving up the ranks. They might be like co-EP level and they've never been on set. They've never been in a production meeting. They, they've never been in an edit. And so then when they have a show, um, they don't really have the experience to run that show. And it, it allows, I think, in my opinion, outside forces to kind of be like, well, you don't really know what you're doing. So we're going to like pair you with this really uh, powerful director or producer or whatever. And it really is changing fundamentally how television is made. And I think that television itself is its own beast and, and it has its own sort of workflow. And it worked so well because it was people who knew what they were doing, teaching people who didn't know what they were doing so they could go on and teach other people. And because that key element um, is missing in the past decade, I think we're trying really hard to fight to, to get that back. And we see the the value in it, especially now. I don't know if anyone wants to add anything to that, but that that's sort of my my vibe. I, I totally agree with you. I, I, I think that um, I was lucky enough to, to learn good and bad when I was coming up. And I think that we've, we've done this thing where we're trying to really, really, you know, it was the, 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 the white dude had a long, nice run and it's good to get different voices to hear different voices and have, and those people have shows, but it's like, we're, we're almost screwing them if they don't know how to run their show. They, you know, I mean, Mindy Kaling said, when I was working on the Mindy project, she was like, I get one chance. You guys get a million chances. If I don't do it right, I'm not going to get another chance. So it's like, we're spending all this time, rightfully so, bringing up all these new voices. But if they don't know how to run their show or they get paired with someone who sucks or wants to take over their show, then all of a sudden it's their fault. And that seems like it's like cutting off our nose to spite our face when we're trying to have all these new voices. Yeah, um, this is Hillary um, talking. Um, I was talking to a writer on the picket line and she was telling me that she is under an overall deal and she is like a supervising producer level and she had been meeting up until the strike to go run shows and she has never been on set 
one time. And so then I said, okay, well, ask yourself, why do they want you to get this title of showrunner if you don't have the experience to do the job? And that's the real question, right? Because they want to create this fake position where the line producer is really in charge and they don't show the showrunner the budget. They want to change what a showrunner is because they know they can't do the job without everything we laid out of how you become a showrunner. They don't want showrunners like there used to be, you know. So there's a reason why they're they're starting to restrict access of information to showrunners, and so this really feels like sadly like a a bigger kind of plan um, beyond uh, just the staff size issue of you know where they've said oh it's a budget thing. Um, so that's one of the things, and I don't know, somebody else probably speak to this too, but I was not sold on the minimum, uh, you know, writer requirement at first. I had to be convinced of this. And then once I was on board and heard Mike Schur talk about it, I was 100% sold. And I was like, we are fighting for something we never knew we had to fight for. Yeah, I, I just, I wanted to come back really quick uh, and interject really uh for our listeners, when you say that they want to restrict what showrunners are able, what the what information showrunners have, including budget, they being obviously the studios, which is the AMPTP, why would they want to do that? Why would they not want showrunners to have their budget or to have access to the information that they typically would? I I think that it's if they limit like uh, you know your ability to. Uh, you know, make changes like, you know, in the budget, like, okay, well, we can shoot it this way. They can control exactly what happens, what shot, like, you don't know how much money there is. Like on my most recent show, I had to fight for the writers to go to set for their episodes. And it was one of those issues where if I had not had access to the budget, which some showrunners are reporting that they do not have access to the budget, I wouldn't be able to say, okay, well, let's find this money somehow. Or when they told me that what I wanted to shoot was not shootable, then I wouldn't be able to say, no, it is shootable, but we need to shoot a shorter episode. So unfortunately, it just allows people to control things on a studio level, a network level, um, where they kind of have people that work for them versus showrunners, where sometimes they feel showrunners are off on their own, they're doing their own thing. And so by limiting the access of information, they can control the situation more. And of course, that neglects to address the fact that the greatest shows ever have been made by showrunners with a lot of power who can know how to make their shows and work with their staff to build a voice and a specific tone and and have that kind of control as the I think it's partly because as the network model broadcast network model this is Jonathan Groff talking by the way um has sort of shrunk or become diminished they're able to almost go to a feature mentality you can sort of see it because in addition to the line producer which Hillary mentioned which is a really good point it's also the idea of a producing director and I love working closely with directors but when you get a producing director who can sort of be seen as the showrunner um, when Steven Soderbergh, who's incredibly talented, but was the the lead guy on whatever show he did, uh, you could start to see that happening a few years ago. Was a, a and they do an eight episode thing, and they can sort of say, "Well, this is really a director's project because of the limited number of episodes, and there's not the pipeline that the broadcast model needed." You know, the writers could really be in control because without the writers kind of at the helm and the showrunner at the helm the pipeline would not be filled and they the, that gave the showrunner a lot of power. And I think these short orders are allowing them to um, sort of ins insert a line producer, insert a producing director, 
again, who have a very important jobs, but it works best when there's a showrunner with an overall vision for for what they're doing, you know, on Hillary's show that she just did or on, you know, or an animated show like Solar Office, it's like Josh is doing, you know, you need that, that, that tonal unity, I think, in terms of a, a writer's writer being in charge of it for the best TV, I think. And to Gross' point, I think you're kind of, in terms of the future, I think you're really seeing that I first am seeing it in those Marvel TV shows because they don't really treat the the writer like a showrunner. They talk to the director like, like, like as if they're the showrunner. And that was so bizarre to me. And I think that speaks exactly to what Groff is saying. And this is Prince Penny, by the way. They are the showrunners on those. I know someone who's a huge feature writer who had a who had a Marvel show. He wasn't even on set. They didn't want him on set. They only wanted to talk to the director. And just to add to what he is saying is, I think the reason they're doing that, Leslie, this is Josh talking, is that when they put someone in the position that has never done, done it before, they don't even know what to ask. They don't even know what they don't know. So they're leaning on the line producer or the producer to tell them what they can and cannot do when they don't have the, that history of experience of saying, well, we did it this way on one show and I saw a showrunner do it this way. So by putting those people in a position, they're 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 immediately able to take the power because that person doesn't know what they don't know. I also think it's trickling down to the consumer, to the viewer. Like how many times have we like seen shows and I won't call anything out by name where it's like it's taking forever for this to get started or like this doesn't totally make sense. Or by the time we get to the end, if you really think about it, that's not. And it's because you didn't have a room of people breaking that story together, writing that story together, rewriting that story together. Like you didn't have ambassadors to each episode, following it through to production, remembering those things so that if something is getting rewritten in episode seven, the person who wrote episode two is like, no, 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 wait, that's going to script that thing that we started over here. Like there isn't a lot of thought that goes into it because it these aren't little movies. These aren't, it's not the same medium. It's, it's its own thing. And I think you see a lot of people complaining about television now that it's not how it used to be. And everyone's wondering why that is. And I personally think this is why that is. So I want to follow up on what uh, Jonathan was saying and specifically direct it to, uh, to David, because Jonathan was talking about sort of the idea that a show could be perceived as being the product of of the directing producers or whatever. And, uh, you know, and that that could be more likely to be the case in the case where you have a creator who hasn't necessarily done it before. And there's a version of this show that could have gone that way because you had the Russo brothers as your directors and they weren't what they are today, but they were still kind of a big part of the brand. And you had not done this before. At what point in the process, as this was getting towards pilot, but then also going towards series, were you able to consciously think, okay, here's how this is going to stay a writer-centric project rather than something else? Well, uh, I got super lucky, to be frank. Like, that's really the answer. Um, and it could have gone, I mean, probably 99 out of 100 times it would have gone the other way, you know, um, as Sierra said. I had never been in a writer's room. So I was learning from the staff writers who had, who had done, who had been, uh, you know, staff writers before. Um, I knew nothing coming in um, and I uh, was very lucky to get uh, paired. I can't, were the Russos after you, Groff? I can't, no, I always um, forget. The Russos had already been on board. It was you and Jamie Tarsus, who I think also should get credit for probably knowing that you needed someone, you know, who would do what I would do. Yeah, so Jamie Tarsis uh, was who I had pitched the show to originally, uh, rest in peace. Uh, and she um, was fiercely protective of of um, of me, you know, and um, 
And obviously I needed a someone to partner with showrunner wise because uh, I knew nothing. And I was supposed to meet a bunch of people, but Groff is the first person I met. And I was a big fan of uh, Conan, which he ran. And and um, uh, we just hit it off. And so I, I, I didn't meet anybody else. Um, but frankly, like he could have completely taken the show from me without me even realizing it honestly like i don't know that i had or have like a very strong artistic backbone um and i think that uh that it's just like lucky from jamie to groff and then the russo brothers who honestly you know it's interesting you say that we hear these things about the marvel stuff because the russos are the most inclusive directors i've probably well i don't want to rank people but they are as inclusive as any directors i've worked with as far as writers like they're they were always from the beginning like if we had anyone had a thought at any level you know um i, I mean i consider myself a staff writer when i you know when i came in but at, at at any level if we had an idea i think you guys would all agree like the russos would be like go out and tell the actor that you know what i mean mm -hmm. which is I mean, I guess maybe I'm not supposed to put in a podcast, but um, <laughs> I, I don't know if that breaks like DGA rules. I mean, I found out very quickly afterwards that like <laughs> most directors don't love that and it does break DGA rules, but they were they were incredibly inclusive in that way. And Groff just from day one was very much like, you know, I'm here to help you find the show that you want to make. But I, um, you know, it helped that he was not just like very welcoming to whatever my again vision is just a strong word for anything i've ever had but uh he was welcoming to that but also like coming with like a plus plus hilarious stuff that i was like oh i still get to you know it still will say created by me even if we put your joke in i was like great and then many of the people on the zoom all came and um and and worked on the pilot too you know so so many jokes in the pilot are not mine um, and, and that was a big adjustment. Groff and I talk about it a lot as I had come from, um, just an absolute, you know, award-winning feature career, uh, before doing this and <laughs> was a, it was a real adjustment for me to write with other people. I had never done that. So at first I like really couldn't do it. And, you know, Groff and I would have late nights and, um, he would sort of talk me through how to do it and how, how, and, and Honestly, by the time I was done, I, I now, anytime I have to write something alone, I'm just like, I know this is so much worse than it would be. No, I, that's not, uh, that's, I think everyone on here would say it. I mean, mm -hmm. Sierra just said it, mm -hmm. you know, like it, it's worse. Like if you have, you know, 15 of the funniest, most talented people in the world in their own right who, you know, are going to go on to make all their own shows. If you have all them working on your thing, like it is better. Like no one can write the amount of jokes that a room like that can write. No one can come up with the amount of stories or, um, or make the stories make sense or twists or what, whatever. Um, now I feel like I'm just going on and on, but, but this show was 1000% written by the entire room, you know, to the point where like, I'm very flattered when people compliment me for, you know, if I see people, uh, and they fans or something like that, um, it's great, but I do feel guilty every time. Cause I'm just like, it, it was made by 20, 25 unbelievable writers, you know? Um, and then that's not even mentioning all the actors and crew and producers and, and, um, directors and have I forgotten anything else? Um, 
Yeah. So, and that's truly not, um, you know, I said some things in here that were false humble, Daniel, uh, but that one is not. Uh, this show was completely, uh, completely room written. I think that's my time. I mean, for but for the size of the room, this is 2010 when the show was first starting. And, you know, for, for David and Jonathan and Josh, you know, when you guys were, were originally staffing the show, was staffing a room with 17 people, and correct me if I'm wrong there, considered the norm in 2010? And was... You know, how has that changed over the years? Like the most for all of you who have been in rooms recently, how big have some of those rooms been by comparison? Mine are much smaller now, but I will again, I had no idea. So I will pass it to Jonathan. Well, we had a lot of staff writers so that and we had a lot of teams, obviously three staff writer teams. Yeah. So the teams you get, I was in a team for years and years and years. It's sort of a cheat, which it would be a great thing if the WGA, I think that's in there a little bit, right? Is that in yeah, there? Yeah, to help out teams. Yeah, yeah. so you basically teams. are getting two for one. So it's all like, you know, they're doing half the work. So that's why we had more. But I mean, I came from, American Dad had over 20 writers, you know. Were, were there a lot of people on deals that first season also? Did that I was going to say, the, the other thing that, that, that yeah. makes the, 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 the head count go a little higher is... Uh, we had some people who the show was produced by two studios, Sony and ABC Signature, and we were able to draw on some of the term deal writers who were on overall deals and were in development, and they would be with us for a few days a week. So we had Stephen Craig and Brian Bradley, and we had Moses Port and David Garacio, and Hillary actually came to us through an overall deal uh, with Sony, and that actually really was another thing, you know. That is, those are going away, and you could argue whether that's good or bad, but um, uh, or they aren't they aren't as prevalent as they used to be. But it was a way, I think, of building up the kind of knowledge and experience base, and you would be able to get those people, and the they could run the numbers so that it didn't hit your budget in the same way, um, which made it great. So we had some like you know, Port and Grasio were showrunners, and Craig and Bradley were these hilarious guys who would go on to run shows, and Hillary was going to leave and go do a run a show after after us and so she was you know you know co-ep i think when she was on the show um so you know we we had the advantage of of that for sure and that definitely drove up the uh the count of of how many people were in the room it was a big room i mean it was it's kind of big for a live action show but i think it was also important part of servicing david's voice was i he wanted some people who were his show was about late 20 early 30 something so getting some people who had some recent connections to that and some you know, Matthew and Daniel were people he had known a long time, and I didn't know. But well, if we I'm, wanted to do high school stories, that's why we hired Daniel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Doogie uh, Hauser, comedy writer. Um, How old were you, Daniel? He was a senior, I think, uh, the first year of Happy yeah. Endings. Yeah. He, he was. was. <laughs> he got college credit. It kind of immediately set the bar for anybody who has a good idea can get something in. And we, because the show was so joke heavy, we did a very heavy joke room. Right where we'd be rewriting the, the script, and that was a place that I know Jason spent a lot of time in that room. But that was a place that anybody could two get years. In. We spent two years in that room. You know, oh and, uh, by the way, those were the things that people remembered the most about the shows yeah. or the jokes, and that was a place that anybody could get anything in. Um, and when we read them aloud or picked them, we didn't know who had written them. Right. It was, you know, so oh, we told you, you told me. <laughs> yeah, we, we took oh, no. credit for the good oh, ones for sure. Um, yeah. But yeah. it was a great way for, for everybody to get to get in, to get, you know, be be a piece of the show very early on. Well, yeah. When you talk about a big room, like there were so many staff writers and the and the sort of 
so to say, adults had to figure out what to do with us. So we were in a joke room. From, <laughs> we were in a joke room and and just like churning out joke after joke after joke. And because I think Casp was so afraid of the show not being funny, uh, that <laughs> we were just like, well, can we put in more jokes? <laughs> and, <laughs> can uh, there be a joke inside of a joke inside of a joke? <laughs> no, and I think in, a, in I think in a lot of ways, like because we had the you know the resources to designate to a joke room it's kind of like how the show took its its tone eventually i, I want to follow up on that quickly because um I, I feel like probably a lot of our listeners don't understand the concept be, of the difference between a joke room and how would you describe what the what the alternative room is and and how rare it is to have that kind of breakdown or or separation i mean we had three rooms that was the great three. three rooms going so we had three a four. Because when you're doing a network TV show, you know, every there's a show being shot and you show being rewritten for the next week and a show that has to be broken. So we would have a story room where people were breaking stories, then a rewrite room where people were rewriting the script that had to table read either that that week or the next week. And then we had a joke room, which is that while people were rewriting the scripts, we would say like, hey, we need a better joke here or we need a run from Max here. And so the joke room would work on that. So after the rewrite would get done, actually it was, and it was fun when it was like six o'clock. It wasn't as fun when it was 11 o'clock, but then they would bring the jokes in and they would read them out for everybody. Perform actually, them. Yeah. Uh, perform them. So that, so, so that was the difference is all three of those things were kind of going on. We also stole a page maybe from, I think it might've been Bill Lawrence's thing, or maybe somebody else did it before where, when a writer was had finished an outline that had been approved before they would go off to script, we would have the joke room say, uh, and sometimes with a, uh, a, an experienced writer too, to sort of say like, how are you really going to get from scene to scene in here in the sort of a spend a day or an afternoon on the outline going through, like, this is, this is how you really should emotionally propel yourself into the next, this is the shape of the scene. And then you would use that same joke room with funny people to go like, here's some funny stuff to take with you to the script. So by the time people went off the outline, um, uh, excuse me, to script with that outline, they had a lot of material. That's something we've implemented on every show we've ever been on after Happy End. It's a great idea. And it's a good point that like, then people would go off the script. So you'd have three rooms working. You'd also have somebody up on script and you'd have some writers down on stage. Like, the idea that like this division of labor where everybody's kind of like just the need of having a staff. Like if you talk to friends who have these mini rooms and then lose the writer's room as they then go into production, it just feels like super daunting to be a showrunner in that capacity where all of your buddies are gone. Well, you wouldn't be able to do your show, Dan, with that. I mean, you have a, a multi-camera. You would never be able to do that because. Well, right. I mean, in that case, you really are having your joke room is on stage. I mean, yeah. all of your whole staff is with you through all the run throughs and uh, and and while you're taping. And uh, so in addition, because we use a joke room as well, but you then have the entire staff there for take night and pitching also on in the moment. Uh, yeah. Prentice, I'd be interested from here, Prentice and Amy on Insecure. Like how was HBO good about letting you? have your staff through production? How did it work on a premium cable show like that? Or did you have to like, was it really just you, you two people, you know, there with maybe the writer would come back? How did it work? For us, it was uh, because we had to have mostly all of it written before we shot because Issa would be in, you know, 90% of the scene. So when we're filming, we don't have time to like be breaking story or coming up with stuff. She really was like in an actress mode 
like really fully. So we might carry like the finale into a rewrite. I think the last season, right, Amy, is like the last season we kind of carried like multiple scripts into the into production. But, but yeah. really what we would do is we had uh, Amy and we'd have another, we'd have two writers and they would kind of flip-flop scripts um, in terms of, so I would be there, but let's say I had to go to a scout. So like there was at least one writer from the room who was always there. So it might be Amy's covering episodes one, three, five, and seven. The other was covering all the even numbers. And that's kind of how we did it. So, and, but they weren't paying for anybody to like hang out. <laughs> so we could have like other writers, which is, but we would just have them come and thank God those writers just wanted to learn. So they would be on set. Um, right, Amy? I mean, that's pretty much. Yeah. And I honestly couldn't imagine doing it with fewer people. It was even hard that way. Like one yeah, writer doing prep and one writer doing post. There are always things you were missing. And then if you rewrote something and you'd have to be like in between scenes being like, actually, we just changed this. So can you have her say this line instead? And it's kind of like, so doing it with even fewer people, how people, how it's done now with so many rooms, especially like Netflix rooms and stuff. I'm like, that's fucking egregious. It, it feels so, so destructive to the creative process to not have a writer carry on through production. I'm going to tell a quick story uh, yeah. just on my own. I just did a show last spring in New York City. So a lot of staff writers on the room, loved the room, but the room was kind of gone by the time we started production. I did ask people could it be extended a little bit and learn to my horror that, yeah, we can extend them. We just won't pay them any additional money, but we'll make their end date later, which sucked basically. Yeah, they just extended the contract, as far as I know. Um, but then once that that those few people finished up, I was completely alone running from stage to production. And this was a show that wanted, we wrapped on July 3rd, and we dropped our first episode on like July 14th. Jesus. And at least it, was, it wasn't a, a binge drop. Like it wasn't like a Hulu or a Netflix all episodes drop, but it was pretty fast. And they wanted to air two episodes like within 10 days. And I've never worked that hard in my life. And part of it was, you know, a couple of writers who there was Laura Guten, who's fantastic, was on an overall deal. But she was in L.A. and didn't want to live in New York. And she had her own development. So I was I saw like the really dark, like it almost killed me, like from running from being the only one on set, running to editing, trying to edit on location with, you know, uh, an editor in either New York or L.A., but not on set. Um, with an Evercast connection that didn't always work on location. Mm -hmm. I remember my line producer was like, he said like, oh yeah, I've never really seen that work where the showrunner can edit on location. I'm like, we better fucking make it work. We got to deliver these episodes. <laughs> and they ended up bringing in like a show? satellite truck. It was called Everything's Trash with Phoebe Robinson uh, for Freeform for Hulu. And it was it was partly because they wanted it. They delayed in picking it up and then they wanted it delivered kind of fast. It was a especially harrowing circumstances but i really saw how bad it can be when you have no help and you know like i had funny phoebe's funny and jordan carlos was a writer on the show and was in the cast and moses storm was a really funny improviser so we got funny stuff on the day but i you know if i had to do a really big rewrite which i did a few times i'd have to like wait till like laura was you know up and about in her day in la and reach out to her and try to zoom for half an hour to fix a hole in a script it was really hard but jonathan studios have offered to allow us to have our writers be interns on the set that seems like <laughs> all that right one intern one, <laughs> one intern intern, intern. it's a contest yeah i've done that uh similarly to what jonathan what jonathan's talking about i've done that on the last probably three things i've had where i'm i'm editing on um evercast or millicast or whatever in 
sitting in video village like so between takes like trying to edit at the same time um and yeah it never it, yeah it's, it's well, but you know good. one of the things uh this is hillary i wanted to say that is is so hard is like not only is it impossible to actually obviously physically do like um you guys are describing but you can never make mistakes you know one of the things like it may be hard to believe looking at this murderers row of writers but they come up with some absolute garbage and <laughs> terrible terrible pitches and huh. the thing is is that with that many writers though you can say that sucks and throw it out and you can have another story by the end of the week you know there was permission and freedom to go down really bad roads that maybe you ended up not doing that story, but then later would come back as a B story, you know? And it was so fun because you could explore things. You didn't have to have somebody constantly saying like, oh, we can't go down that road. I, I don't think that's going to work. And we have to turn around, you know, we had time to do all that, and, you know? And, and, and to Hillary, to your point, even beyond that, like within a week, like, oh yeah, that, that didn't play at the table read. We need to rewrite that. I'm sure you've had this experience on a show where like, oh, we just rehearsed it and it doesn't work at all. So you need, at the very least, you need a couple of writers on the set to help you, the episode writer and the showrunner to figure out that scene. Or numerous times on uh, this show on Happy Endings, on Blackish, other shows, I would go like, you know what, let's call the room and, you know, get open up that script and do a quick rewrite of the scene with the brilliant people we had in the room. That's impossible. Like you're, you know, you're doing a streaming show with 10 episodes. Your writers are going to interrupt them on they're on and hopefully on another show. You know, it's, it's, re and it's bad for the final product to Hillary's point. This is here. And a lot of these mini rooms, all the writers go off to script and aren't paid for the week that they're writing. So I imagine if that were me, I would not be putting my best effort because I would be running around trying to find another job while I'm also expected to write the script. You turn it in, you're like, good luck. Hope it works out for you because you're not getting paid to rewrite it. You're not getting paid to... And they're all being written at the same time. So if your show is serialized, then your showrunner is left with these like eight Franken scripts that they have to make sense of as you're going into production, as you're going into planning, as you're going into everything. It's You're really being set up to fail. And as Josh said before, if you are a first-time writer, if you're a writer of color, if you're a woman, like that shit is... 10 times harder for you because you're not allowed to ask for more. You're not allowed to take up space in that way. And so you really have to just kind of eat it and keep going. And eventually you, you burn out. It's just, it's not, a, it's not benefit. And like those writers didn't learn anything that showrunners put in an unfair position. It's just all of it's bad. In the mini rooms, do you get paid for your scripts? At least you get a script fee. Yeah, you, you do. Okay. Yeah. It has to go through. That's your payment. Yeah, but that's your payment is the script fee. So right, right. you don't get paid that week that you write it. But it doesn't have to be that way, right? Like, no. Yeah, I, those, freebie, those freebie shows. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's not every mini room, but like those freebie shows. Because all the, like the paid tier, it's like the Wild West now. It's like crazy. But in terms of like just having other writers around, like Roth is saying, like I had a friend of mine that was running a show for Sony and they threw out her last like three episodes. And then was like, you have to like break them all over again by yourself. Because, and they were, they had just started production on the, on the pilot. And so it was like, they had cut the room. They weren't allowing her to bring back any writers. And so she just had to break all these, the final Night three episodes there. while being on set. Yeah. It was, a, she was just like, this was insane. That happened to my friend, Kristen Newman. The platform asked for a massive rewrite of the last two episodes. She's like, who, who's doing that? I'm yeah. Shooting. She was on set in Argentina. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to add just, yeah, this is Leela speaking. Um, I think Hillary brought up the idea of, of time in addition to size on mini rooms, which is like 
some people are getting like 10 weeks and it's like you get writers for 10 weeks break and write the entire show. And that leads to the sort of compartmentalization that they I think these especially tech companies are looking for. Like you do this job for a short amount of time and then it switches to these people instead of this time for growth. And I on Happy Endings, my first year, I was a, a story editor and um, which I have Jonathan Groff to thank for. They they also really try to hire you as a staff writer for as long as you can. And I had been on a couple shows before that and they wanted to hire me as a staff writer. And uh, my agent was like, Groff told them he fought for you. So that was just a, a nice uh, additional Hollywood story for, about Jonathan Groff. But <laughs> I, was a, I was a story editor my first year. And because we sort of had time and because like, the senior people, one's on set, usually one's running their rewrite for their like lower level people got opportunities and there was the time to give them opportunities. So like my first year, Groff let me run a story room to break a C story, the smallest possible part of a thing. <laughs> and it probably had like four beats and I took it so seriously. And and Matthew were in that. We're working under me. That was a tough room. That was a tough room. Given a job. But uh, it does like empower younger people to start thinking that way. If all you're doing is like listening to an older person, like, you know, and you're, you're giving your ideas, but you're not really learning these additional skills. Like it gives room to slowly start building, like giving people those skills so that they can grow in that way, which is, which is huge, which is, I think a huge part of what we're doing. This is Jackie. I just want to point out that Leela is calling people old. <laughs> <laughs> but I just want to piggyback on 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 in terms of time. And I think as what Leela is saying, I think the other thing that really goes unappreciated or, or not really thought of is that it takes a second to even figure out one, what the show is and two, to build chemistry. Like we were so blessed, I think, because obviously cast and the Livements and me, Leela, Lon and Dan. Um, and Groff and Barcel had worked together on Scrubs the previous year. So we got to have a whole year, not even working on happy endings, but just getting to know each other. Obviously, hey, the Libyans knew each other too. So when we got to come together, there was some chemistry. We worked on the pilot together. There was some chemistry that had already started to form in the room, but we still had to find our own. Now imagine shows where somebody's coming in where nobody knows each other or it's just like casual. So you have to figure out how you're going to work together as a room. And by the time you do that, it's like, no, you can't stay around anymore. It's like by the time you've learned how to figure out how to function as a group, just like any sports team, it's like it's over. That's and so I think that's point. the thing that people are, are understanding on how rooms work as its own ecosystem. I hadn't even thought of that, Prentice. That's a great point. And I feel like in this room, I tell so many stories. This is Jackie about how, I mean, I remember breaking a story with Prentice and he, you know, there were two paths and he's like, why don't we follow both paths? And I was like, you can do that and you know hillary but the first time i went out for like an outline and she would say well first of all she said don't get stuck writing on the board if you're a woman and i was like yes I am, and i never wrote on the board <laughs> and no one wanted me to i had very bad handwriting but also you were like make sure you act like as funny as the outline is make sure you end with the emotional moment like stuff that i'm like it really is impactful like i mean i I joke that by is I call him Uncle Hollywood. Like he has been, he gifted me a Vanity <laughs> Fair subscription for many years. And Just you know, on my show now, they call me Grandpa Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> but all of that mentorship is so so important. And but to leave 
about like it being like it's like okay these people do this job and these people do this job when i was doing running co-running blockbuster with my friend vanessa ramos we were in vancouver we were the only two people up there Cass would be up sometimes um he was a ep on the show but he wasn't like running the show at the time and we just got like decimated with covid up there and like <laughs> like seven actors got covid and it was like us to rewriting our entire and we couldn't push because we were in Vancouver. It's not like they were pulling down the sets. And it's like, I mean, I we both came back with like we just aged in, in this way that was just like <laughs> not good. And you know, I remember in Happy Endings, like an actor dropping out right before going to shoot. And it's like, okay, everyone then just pitched in and we fixed it together. But when it's only one or two people doing it. It's this like Herculean task that is never really going to end well for anyone. I think what's interesting, just to just to um, uh, react to that, uh, this is David, is um, that like everyone dreams of of having a show and 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 you know getting it on TV and all that stuff, which puts you in this weird position because like when they offer you to make your show, like they basically can just be like, and this has happened to me on really every show I've done, I think, is they're like, they're like, okay, we'll do it for this number. And if you give it to us, like in a month, you know what I mean? And like, there's very few people and, and, or maybe it's, this is just like a problem with my personality, but like, who can say no to that? You know what I mean? Like it, it, and, and so, you know, Jackie was just talking about that show we did, like the budget was incredibly low, you know, um, but what are we going to say? Like, no, you know? Um, so I don't know the answer to that, but it just it seems like it's a uh, something to say after Jack. Well, we need protections <laughs> from the guild. We need protections from the guild so that you don't have to make that choice, yeah. right? Like, that's that that would help everybody if we don't, they, they can't make us do that. But there's also an element that I found also when you're put in that position, even when this is long by the way but when Ralph was talking about what his friend Kristen Newman had to face it's just like if that was me I would end up just okay I want to seem like a team player I want to be someone that they want to hire again and so I'm going to make this work I'm just going to I'm just going to do it I'm going to make this work yeah and that seems unhealthy and you do it because it is your dream and because it's such limited opportunities but it doesn't feel like the way it should work it It also makes no sense if you think about like if they allow us to make better shows, they'll make more money, right? Because the shows will be better and they will have to make less new shows because the shows that we made are good and we had a little bit more time with a little bit of writers and we'll be able to keep those shows on the air, which will also ha- allow them to make more money. Like, yeah, but if they allow us to make better shows, AI can't take our jobs. Like, I just right. feel like it's connected. Uh-huh. The worse our shows get, the more yeah. we're easy to replace by machines. Is it also, and this is Leela, part of like, and this is just reading, and I think this is where the bodies that make up the APMPPP differ, but like, the networks versus like a Netflix and like the sort of Netflix pump and dump philosophy or whatever, like two seasons and we cancel you. Cause it's like about subscribers. And so we just need constant new contact and we don't care if it's good or not. And we just want new stuff and then we can cancel it and have some new, some other new idea and some other new, you know, where like, it's not about building an audience and letting a show grow and letting people get attached to it and want to like 
stay. They was like, oh, we don't want people to stay subscribed. We want like a new show that's going to get new people. And so that's falling away, which is sad for if you're a lover of television like myself. <laughs> Friends are on the TV. Right, but looking at the Netflix model, these these shows, the the, co- the price tag on these shows, the, one of the big reasons that I've heard that, that Netflix does limit how many seasons a show goes is because if you look at, at, at the cost per tier, each season becomes exponentially more expensive. And by the time you get to a season four, if you're lucky enough, it's costing Netflix full, it's almost double or triple what a season one cost. So if your show is in season three and the viewership allegedly, which nobody knows, which you guys are asking for that transparency, but if the, the ratings are allegedly declining and you need, you've got those subs already and you're trying to, and I'm not defending Netflix here, but I'm just saying that the, the, the model itself is not set up to support the artist. The, the model is set up to be profitable especially now when you look at like the password sharing crackdown that they're doing and some and the ad tier it's very clear what their entire bottom line is that they that is what they are fueled by right but it is just how how profitable right because every business is in the business of being profitable i mean abc is in the business of being profitable they're all in the business of being profitable it's but it's just also understanding at a certain point like it's just like if you call the trees down in the forest and you go well how come i can't have clean air. It's like, well, you chopped all the fucking trees down. So it's like, they're just kind of cannibalizing itself and kind of making these kind of arbitrary reasons and why, but they, they have no problem paying Sarandos and those guys 60 million, 50, $80 million in bonuses. Right. So it's just like, it's just like, where do you want your things to go? And that's really what it comes down to. John, John Rogers is on the negotiating committee, had a great tweet thread about this at the beginning of it all. And talking about you know, these decisions are made by human beings. Everybody's like powerless to, everybody sort of says we're powerless to change. Things are changing. But one of the points he's making is exactly what Prentice said. Like there used to be a business of like making TV shows and movies and making a profit. And then it became so Wall Street driven based on subscribers. And, you know, I hate to reference another publication, but uh, Joe Adele, and and I forget who co-wrote it, but the piece, The Binge Purge that was in Vulture is a great deep dive into the predicament that we're in that is totally self-inflicted wound. Self-inflicted. And to Prentice's point, like, we, the business worked for a long time where you made stuff and you sold ads or you sold tickets, you know, real things where you had a sense of who was watching and showing up and when, and then we decided to you know, pitch it to be like a tech startup, essentially. No, I mean, the cable model, that article was, they were like, cable television was just a money printing machine, right? And like, I, I don't have a problem if my show has ads in it, if it, if it allows me to make, the funny thing is they're all going back to the old model. They like went away yes. from the model. And now but they're we're all making like, less money. That model we're making over less there, money in it. we made money though. Well, should we go do that now? And it's like, <laughs> yeah, you know. And so if it takes us back to that, I don't have a problem with that, you know. But it's just so stupid that that they, yeah, they absolutely went away with that to drop ten episodes with no ads. It's you like know, they, they want to blow up the norms on the back of this terrible ga- calculation, and then go back to a uh, revenue model that actually makes sense, but having broken our union and possibly everybody else's uh, union. When de- when. Jason and I had our show, our Netflix, our short-lived Netflix show. They kind of took us behind the curtain a little bit and they showed us like these taste clusters. And it was all like this whole day of showing us all the fancy ways that they market their shows and do their shows. And that was also in that article too, where they're like, we don't need to market your show because our algorithm will just put your show 
on Netflix where people watch it and where we're like, well, for how long? For eight seconds? Like, you know. Is that a snack or cereal I can buy? Taste clusters? They said to us, Netflix said to us on the day that our show drops, it's like, you'll see it on your page. It'll be right there. Sure thing. Open it up. Shows nowhere near it. Had to search for it. Had to do everything for it. And I have kids that, well, I literally made the show for my kids. I have kids who only watch that stuff on Netflix. I could not find it anywhere. And then, you know, their big thing, and I've heard this at Hulu too. I have a show now at Hulu is, and it, this doesn't make sense either if you really think about it, is they say they only care about completion rate. Who completed your entire season, right? And, but that's not, that's not bringing new views. So, if it's about new viewers and not about that, like those two things are, inc- they don't make sense. Right. So what are you, what are you judging it on? And I think it is Leslie, you were saying like, right, they've made these deals where third and fourth season, you know, like, well, that's there. They made that. They decided to come up with a new deal, right? They're like, this Cheerio is not good enough. We want a new Cheerio that costs way more that we're going to smash in, in uh, three years. Whereas if anybody's had ever had a kid, the little bags of Cheerios, they work just fine by themselves. <laughs> now you're just purposefully naming Cheerios. Now you're Cheerios. just naming Cheerios. Yeah, it's it's not not a sponsor. It's not a sponsor. Literally trying to get sponsored. A new Cheerio. I mean, that's a new Cheerio. Revenue stream. Advertising in a podcast? This episode is not brought to you by Cheerios. Sorry, guys. But like, you know, I, I do want to touch on, you know, you previously all mentioned that different things like whether it be the existence of a joke room in inside a mini room. So many of you have went on to become showrunners and obviously so many of you have continued to work to work together on things. But what were some of the things that you brought from your experience in the Happy Endings writers room to the other shows? And did you ever face any roadblocks from the studios or the streamers and saying, no, you can't do that because we want to have control or there's a financial roadblock or, or what have you. I can speak that a little bit. Um, one of the, I don't know if like the younger writers remember this, but like a lot of the upper level writers had deals. And so they would develop shows while we were working and then they would go off and make pilots. And then the ones that didn't get picked up, they'd have to come back to work on the back nine. And so like the first like couple of weeks would just be them like, Monday morning quarterbacking, like where it went wrong, where they're like, I should not have passed this person, or like, I shouldn't have let this guy tell me, I shouldn't have let him wear that hat, or whatever. And they were like ruminating, and I was just like watching them and writing things down because I was finding it so fascinating. And one of who told the story of like, put funny people in your funny pilot? I can't remember. It wasn't I, I, I had that was quote. Uh, I worked with an old line producer, executive producer named Vic Kaplan. I know I'm pretty much, he said, put funny people in your show. Put funny people in your show. <laughs> put funny people in your funny show. Yeah. And Where's so you when we were <laughs> <laughs> But when we were casting Rutherford Falls, Janice Meeting, who was a staff writer on our show, auditioned to play the lead. And um she'd never done anything. She'd never she'd been on like on a I think like a tag on Broad City, and that was it in terms of professional acting. And she was so good and she was so funny. And I remember like weirdly hearing Groff's voice of like put funny people in your funny show like that was like and so I knew like I just have to fight for this I just have to fight for this person and like if anyone says no I just have to keep pushing for this this is like the one battle I will try to win and then also remembering that you guys had put Pally in in on happy endings and he had never done anything before 
before this, that show. And so just remembering like, oh yeah, that's something you can do. That's not a crazy thing to do, but there, I think outside forces that will try to kind of put things in your head of like, what about this? And what about this? And what about data? But at the end of the day, if you're like in your gut, you just remember what this person said in 2013, um, it oddly can work out. And she, she played the lead on our show and I think did phenomenally. So I think there's a lot of like that hang time you guys are talking about of like learning those moments and, and, Sometimes you'll push for stuff and it's almost like the people are like, oh, how did you know you could do that? <laughs> You're like, yeah, because I worked on network television in the early aughts. I do think it's particularly a job and maybe many jobs are this way where like the best way to learn is by doing it, you know? And so that's really what what's at stake here. In terms of like things I took, I mean, honestly, everything, like every single, not a day goes by in any job I've had since then. And I've worked luckily consistently since Happy Endings where I don't think about something I either directly learn from Groff, Bicel, or Gail, or Mo and Dave, like any of those, like, or actively, like, think about, like, what would, like, I remember something Groff said, I remember something Bicel said here, like, it was truly, like, we are all got just so lucky. So, like, my, like, on paper, you could say, like, yeah, you need this many people, you need this, but also, like, you could have that and not get the education and like the thoughtful training we got from these people who ran the show. It was such a blessing. I mean, two or sorry, one eleven, our first episode of television we had ever written. I got sent Daniel and I got sent to run. Uh, this is Matthew, by the way, uh, a, uh, a production meeting. I did not know what a production meeting was. I had never heard of it. I didn't know what, yeah. literally no, no supervision at all walked in and they're like, okay, there's 40 people at a table. And they're like, all right, page one, uh, James F. being groceries. What does she have? I was like, Holy shit! I have. Just absolutely. Daniel was there. That was hazing. That yeah. is total malfeasance on my part, and I apologize. <laughs> it was amazing. Hold on, we did have yeah, Prentice. Crazy. Prentice. Prentice was on set with us. I don't know if you remember Prentice for our first episode. Like I we remember. had supervision on set, and maybe someone came in probably eventually. But I remember just like we asked questions if we didn't know the answer. Like a lot of it was that stuff, but like. It, it was um it, it was truly like we 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 took so much from Can I say something real quick? I just watched that's one of the episodes I just watched. It's so <laughs> funny. That's with Damon's dad coming, with Brad's okay, dad now, coming. Yeah. Now that's and a the, real show. Now that's a now real it's show. Just, it's yeah. a, technically that <laughs> we should kind of get credit. I feel we like should we should get fight for that. that. You should be getting <laughs> credit for that. <laughs> and that's where Casey, where uh where Penny and uh, Alex get drunk and Penny speaks Italian. And yeah. Dave oh, and Max ribs. are shooting uh, shooting uh, Nerf guns at Paul Shear, and they set fire to Paul Shear's obvious apartment across the street. There's so much jammed that's, into that episode. That's all in one episode, that and that's all, in one all stuff that's referenced all the time. That's crazy. That was a lot. I, I was just gonna I was just gonna add about there, are, I, I, and I, I agree with Matthew. There's so much. There's an endless amount of things that I, I learned. I think one of the things there were two that stand out to me specifically. One is the casting, um, because you know, again, like. Besides uh, 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 Alex, like nobody had, like was really like, like Damon was new, Pally was new. I mean, obviously Casey had worked and, and people had worked in various things, but nobody was like, oh, this is like their stars or whatever. It was all sort of new. And I remember when we were casting Insecure and I think typically for, you know, sometimes for black shows or black movies, the thing is like, let's put Ludacris in it. Let's just put Ludacris in it. And let's just put people that black people will fuck with. And that's who's going to be the cast. And he said, I were like, no, I was like, I just watched this work on Happy Endings where they just cast all basically new people. And we kind of want to do the same thing. And that was a big thing that I could point to and go, no, I just worked on a show where like that happened. 
Um, and the other thing that I, I, I definitely subscribe to was everybody on the show is so funny and talented in all their areas, but I felt like everybody was so specific and I didn't feel ever that there was like a repetitive voice in the room. And that was a big thing that I took to go when I was doing insecure. Like I wanted everybody to be specific in terms of what they were giving me. And I knew like in our room, I was like, a Leela joke is going to be different than a Sierra joke or a Lidman joke is going to be different than a Gil joke. Like everybody brought their own. It was just specific. And I've been on part of other shows where it's like, we got five guys that are kind of the same guy. And <laughs> that was just such a real um, eye-opening thing for me to make everybody feel super specific in what they were bringing. And, and that's what I saw in this room for sure. I want to follow up on on sort of two parts of that. First of all, I want to follow up with what uh, Prentice was just saying about sort of the not wanting to have a repetitive voice in the room and the particular challenge that that presents in a 17-person room. Uh, specifically, I, I just I guess I want to start with the younger writers. What is the process like if you've never done this before or if you've only done this once or twice before of figuring out what your voice is that isn't going to be repetitive and who was encouraging you to find that voice? I mean, for me, it was, we, we just kind of had stuff that we thought was funny. I mean, God, it was such a funny staff is insane. Uh, <laughs> it, it was so crazy. It's so amazing. Uh, just finding what we thought was funny, honestly, like we just got lucky. Like we had certain stuff that made us laugh. And so we just started to like, pitch that and you know and 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 it 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 seemed to work and it helped everyone's voice kind of helped shape the show i think in in such a in such a lucky way you know i think too i'll i'll just say this in terms of like it, it was a good blend of like letting these funny young people learn how to do it but then we did have we had josh bicell who wrote episode four and we had gail Lerner who wrote uh the episode uh who i think wrote the episode where max comes out to his friends and like we had some pros and prentice was knew knew what he was you know and hillary and we had people who knew what they were doing and so like it was a blend and so it was like a lot of it i think was modeling the behavior of people who were able to take all of these disparate voices and then in their own script really you know turn in a draft that was something you could really jump off from I mean, I definitely take so much stuff into other rooms and I'm all like, I think a couple of things. One, I think a joke room was a really nice place to put newer writers because you could you could make mistakes. I still remember, I think it was the first, Gil and I's first script had to be sort of group written because of a production issue. And then the first script we actually wrote, somehow we got the wrong, we did the wrong formatting and like the scripts were supposed to be like 32 pages and I was just like 38 and I do remember Gail doing the production meeting and it was called Unproducible. <laughs> and, like, oh no. Um, but no one got mad at us. And I remember the next season we turned in our script and it was like in the right format and all this and it was good. Um, I remember Groff coming into our office as if we were like children who had just used the potty. He was like, guys. <laughs> You did it. <laughs> like you have come so far and i was like wow they must have been really mad about that but never let us know but it's like you, you couldn't like, there's other shows where you would have been asked back for that and it was like 
you know, it's like we just had to take eight pages out of that script, you know, no big deal. But it was you could make mistakes. And I feel like that is an important thing too to have in a room. You know, Jack, Jackie brings up a really good point. This is Hillary of that, you know, you were not only could you make mistakes creatively, but like, you know, you could be yourself, you know, and people there was enough time and enough other people that like you could people could be like, okay, they're not good at this or they're good at this. And you didn't have to be like good at everything. And your flaws, it became like a family in the way that like everybody knew their flaws. Like lawn wears gray and brown together, you know? And it's like I can't you know, believe you uh, remember that. It's really upsetting. Do you remember I, Lon wanting that was it the Hugo the Boss? Hugo Boss. That's a great point that Hillary's making, though. That's a great point that Hillary's making because I think when you're hiring a staff, like the idea of these small staffs where it's all just top heavy with a couple of co-EP or EP level people, and maybe you hire a staff writer, like you need to have people who have strengths in different areas, you know, and some are really good storytellers, but then, you know, their jokes aren't going to be as great, but that's okay because they're going to tell like an honest story from their life that, that you have you know, six other really funny people who can go like, okay, that's great. We could do this. We could do this. And like to be able to build a staff like that, that's why shows are great because yeah, you have I mean, that. I purposely remember, and Hillary happens to be a hilarious person also, but one of my favorite moments, and I think it was, it ended up being in a script that Leela and I wrote together is the, the, Ironically, it's the it was the Zoom table basically at the. It was the right? it's the totally memorable season yeah. ender yeah. thing that was it, a it Hillary wasn't story. No, Hillary was it was uh, Skype. No, Skype. It was Skype. Being at the yeah, Skype, Skype table yeah. at a wedding is Skype. so specific. <laughs> oh, yeah, and first of all, Skype missed the boat big time. Uh, <laughs> but um, <laughs> um, it was so specific and so real. And it was, and I remember we put it in. I think we got our note out. We're like, no, that really happened. That's a real mm -hmm. thing. And it was so funny. It was Brian Austin yeah. Green and Penny so ends funny. up dancing with the Skype on the floor <laughs> with the with the laptop. And that was um, a Hillary. Hillary told this story about being at the Skype table at a wedding. It was like, oh my god. And it was our, it, that was our season it was, finale. Season it wasn't. Two. It wasn't a. It wasn't something that happened to me. It was just like the next level of hell would be the Skype table. Oh, okay. Like right, it was yeah. just having been at a wedding and being at the rando table, <laughs> and that, that was what would what, what could be worse than that? You know, was if it was Skype. But that's because we had the time. Like we would sit. I would. We would sit. That picture that Jonathan pulled uh, that that was in there. That was how we broke our stories. You'd see like the 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 level of detail, like we wouldn't even bring Jonathan and David in until we were at that level of, you know, it looked like it was like a beautiful mind on those. And I think that that's the other thing. I, 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 can we, can we talk a little bit though about like that, what's going on in the back, the hair at the back of the neck there. It's a little long for a kind of guy <laughs> with thin hair. For an older gentleman, <laughs> yeah, no, an older gentleman could have used a little trim up the back. Is all. Um, I want to say you look exactly the same. You literally, well, that's very kind. Oh, I was going to say he looks really gray in that, like in the face, but you look <laughs> much better now. Um, I never understand on shows where people are like, um, "You did that wrong," and you're like, "Well, you didn't tell me how to do it." Like people, writers get blamed for doing things wrong that the showrunner has kept in their head the whole time. Right. The whole idea of training other people is so they'll take the work off your hands. Yes. You can feel like, you know what? I know Prentice and the Libmans are down on stage. I don't need to worry about like being a showrunner and all these guys 
everyone here has now, unless it, until you go from seat two to seat one, you don't know what that job is. You just and we all and we all felt that so much, which made us like as the staff writers like want to work harder and feel ownership over the show because we were being encouraged to learn and like. The culture too for us was like after work we would go hang out. I mean we had no we didn't have kids then, but like we would go hang out on set mm-hmm. for hours. And I mean just Daniel like, watch, had to be like, because he had a curfew, but besides that, <laughs> legally <laughs> we would cool. hang out, and it was all the it was most of the actors' first show too. So like we would hang out with them at their trailers and like go on set. Like we would, I had never been on set, so didn't know what coverage was, didn't know what any, and just by like being around and encouraged to learn and being welcomed to like be part of it and like shown the ropes like by the time our episode came around like we had a little bit of a, a handle on it it was it was um it was incredible but that's the that's the thing that's so interesting to me about writing all the episodes and then kicking everyone off the staff is like what we learned on happy endings with the level of collaboration between the writers and the actors and literally like taking pictures from everyone on stage was that like your show you're you're not done when you finish writing. You're just starting. Like you make the show on set and in the editing room. And like, so that idea that, you know, once you've finished writing that like anyone can just make the show is uh, this show is, is, a, is proof that that's absolutely fundamentally false. I, I want to go back to the, uh, to Sierra's Twitter feed, uh, thread because that started this and she has a great quote from Prentice that I've heard variations on before, but I I like the way it's phrased here. And and the quote is the showrunner is the painter and we're the paint figuring out your color. And when they need it, be that color. Don't try to be someone else's color. And I think that's a really interesting perspective on the staff writer process versus the showrunner process. I'm curious for you guys, how does that quote, how does it manifest itself in bad writer's rooms. You guys don't necessarily need to name any names, but what is the sort of the downside of that? Can I give some context to that, just of where it came from? Where it came from, for me, was more from the staff writer perspective, right? And so it came from a place where when I was starting off on on some other shows, and and I was guilty of this early on in the beginning, too, of like pitching something and it not getting in and wondering why it's not getting in, or being like, or, or, or watching other young writers be like, well, why didn't they use my joke? Or they like him more. Like you can get in your head kind of quickly mm-hmm. as a young writer of like, you, like my jokes aren't getting in or, or like, why aren't they liking my pitches or, or they like that person's pitches. So maybe I'll pitch like that person. It's like just getting in your head of like changing who you are, getting caught in the money, the minutia of arguing with, with the showrunner when the showrunner clearly doesn't want to go in that direction. Right. Or saying that that showrunner is wrong. Right. It's just like, that's just the choice that that showrunner was making. If you were running a show you might go down path B while they're going down path A, but you can, I've seen writers literally argue with the showrunner about why their pitch is better than the showrunner. And so it was just more so from that standpoint, not so much from, and I'm sure showrunners can do all the, I mean, showrunners can do a bunch of crazy shit, but that's where the context was coming from more so from writers that are sitting around wondering why certain things aren't happening for them and things like that. Yeah. When Brenda said that to me, I think like I had forgotten in my meeting with Groff that he had been like, okay, you're like a teacher's pet. So you're going to like calm down these people. This person will get along with you. This person might not like he was kind of beautiful minding in my meeting of like where I fit. And I had completely forgotten because when you were in that room, there's so many funny people. It's such a big room. It's so intimidating. You don't even realize that other people are also nervous. You can only just feel like your own flop sweat and everyone is kind of reactionary. And then when Prentice said that, I was like, oh, Groff told me what he wanted me to be for this room. And it's like, 
predominantly story, predominantly fixing problems, going to the people that I knew wanted to hear from me. And then over time, you you can become other things. You can get better in these other arenas. And and the people I saw really like shine in that room were the people who had a really strong sense of self and like knew who they were and knew what what purpose they served in that room. Um, I think bad showrunners, in my opinion, I, I I think it was like the first week. I saw it was like best joke wins. Like it, you know, anyone can pitch. Da, 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 da. Then I went on other shows that will not name where that same speech was said and it was not true. <laughs> so I went and like, yes, happy endings rules. Like sounds great. And then it was like, oh no, that's not at all true. Like this person has favorites. This person only wants their own pitches. This person might be insecure and wants your approval and you're trying to get their approval. Like there's some people I think that when when you have the pressure of being a showrunner and having experienced it, you become like kind of crazy. And you react to that power in different ways. And some people can handle it and some people can't. And I think the bad ones, I think, in my opinion, like hold on to all of the, all of the paint and they kind of want to do it on their own or, or they can't sort of create collaboration or they can't like hear sometimes because they're just like freaking scared or sometimes because they're just not good at working with other people. Right. And, and where that comes from, this is Lon again, is that really like we're people who sometimes just like sitting alone and writing stuff down. And then all of a sudden you're in a position <laughs> where it's just like, oh, we're going to make this. And now you're running this show. And it's just like, oh, so in addition to that, I'm also managing people and trying to figure out how this show works and doing all of this. So you can be bad at it and you might not have those managerial skills just because you're good at writing stuff down. But that's why an experience like Happy Endings is helpful when you start off, because then all of a sudden you don't have all of those responsibilities at first, but you're one by one, you're going into casting and learning how to do that. You're slowly learning how to run rooms like Leela did as a story editor. So when you take it piece by piece, by the time you run a show, you're, you know, you know what you're doing a little bit more. And that's, and, and that's the other thing that I think that why having writers stick around is so important because you because you need to see that part of the process. And I remember I saw this in uh, obviously Groff, Bicell, and, and Cap. But I remember Groff being. I think Groff said this to me one time. He's like, you know, being a showrunner is different than being the best writer in the room. Those are two different skill sets. There are people who are really great writers that are horrible showrunners because they are horrible managing people. <laughs> you know what I mean? And there are showrunners who are good, show, <laughs> amazing showrunners who may be like, okay, writers, but they understand that this skill set is what I need in this thing. Like there'll be times where Castle's not even necessarily writing as much because he's in editing or he's doing 50 other things as, as, as he was saying earlier. So there's so many other people doing the, doing the quote unquote writing part because he has to manage set. He has to manage post. He has to manage talking to the network about what the next episode is. And so those are very different skill sets. But if you're not around to see how those skill sets differ, then you won't learn. And if you are, like Hillary was saying, somebody like, like the first keeper on the line who is thrust into this new position, they could think that being the best writer will make me a good showrunner. And those, those, those traits are not transferable. This is Groff. I think that, yeah, a little bit, it's like the genius fallacy a little bit with, there are some people who are really great writers, but they can't play well with others. And they always has to kind of be their way. And they, instead of, you know, sometimes they'll look at a room of that, like a a board that a a group has worked on, a bunch of people have broken a story and have come up with a, a whole path and they'll just change it to change it kind of, because it isn't their way. And I think that, I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's certain, there are geniuses. Like I wouldn't want 
you know, Mike White t- t- should write White Lotus and it's amazing. You know what I mean? Um, I guess. He could use a room. He could use a room. He couldn't need a room. He couldn't. He I could, mean, couple, he, he couldn't beat some women jokes. on that Hawaiian season. There you I go. don't know, maybe. Yeah. There you go. Good point. <laughs> So, I mean, I think that there are there are definitely those folks out there, but I think too many people have bought into the notion that I'm now running a show and every single word needs to be mine and every single idea needs to be mine. And it's like, no, to what Josh Bicell just said, like, let your really smart people help you do it because it's really hard <laughs> and get the really smart, funny people to help you tell your stories and write the jokes and it'll be more fun and the show will be better, I think. Trust room. You hire those people for a reason. Trust every one of them to make the best possible product and be thankful that your name is on it. I mean, there is one person in every room who's out to get you for sure. So you, the idea is figuring out who that is. That is. And keeping them close, but so, not. Jackie. It's like 50% of your time, honestly, is finding that person. Smoking a shout out. out. This is great. I'm going to give a shout out to, to my next. My next boss slash partner after Blackish, after uh, Happy Endings was Kenya Barris at Blackish, and nobody had a stronger voice and point of view. And he's really hilariously funny, but he was so good instinctively, like David was, I think. And and but he'd been on staff before, so maybe he'd seen the the alternative where he was really good at like letting Gail Lerner and Peter Saji and Vijal Patel and Courtney Lilly and everybody bring their stories. He actively wanted that, you know, like, tell me your stories. I can tell my story, but this show is going to be better if I have uh, young people, old people, white people, women, men telling me like what their experiences are. And like, if you can have the fortitude to do that as you run a show, um, I learned a lot from working with him because he, and, 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 and David was the same, you know, it was really cool. Like, like, yeah, help me, help me do this. By the way, it goes back to, I think what Hillary said or somebody, you need the time for that though. You need, Prentice was saying it, you need those two weeks at the beginning of the season. You know, it, 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 nobody, it's, this is so inside baseball, but that one or two weeks at the beginning of a season when it's just the writers shooting the shit and figuring it out, like, it's amazing what you will come back to years later or months later of a little snippet or someone that something said in those first two weeks where there's not the immediate, you don't have to literally hit the ground running and break an, a break an episode within two days. You know, I think that that is, and that's ephemeral in some ways that they'll never understand the creative process, but it is, it does go back to time. If you are a showrunner and you know, you have nine weeks to break the entire, you don't have it does. You end up having to be autocratic in some ways because th- you don't have time to even realize if someone else has a good idea or not, and you just don't get good TV that way. But these companies do it. They they just call it like comp- like corporate retreats. Like, and there will be so many times where we would just go to a Dodgers game, just like after work, just be like, hey, let's just go to a Dodger game or whatever and hang out, and that just lowers the vibe of like getting to know people outside of work, right? And then ideas come out, outside of that, like. I don't know how much the Los Doyers stuff came out in terms of people. We would have jokes about that or just so many other things of just hanging out outside of the writer's room. But again, you need time to be like, okay, we can afford to like take an early afternoon off to go to a Dodger game because we're not stressed about Do you it remember has to be in the Dodger seven game? Because Pat J. Jack was Pat's, the next Yes, Lon lost his mind. Lon lost his mind. Lon was trying to do like this cool like lean so he would get in the picture. <laughs> he, he could not have cared less. He was not interested. Didn't in somebody catch a Groff? Groff got a, a ball. foul ball. Ajax. Better did, and he, he 
By the way, Lon on Scrubs, didn't Jonathan and I let him go? Didn't you go? You were on. No, wait. Who went to be on a game show? Lon. Definitely Lon. Yeah. Who else would you be? Yeah. Lon, like, could you? you It was was Scrubs, I think, right, where I went to audition. So you guys gave me the day. And then I got (laughs) called back to actually be there. And I would have to miss a day. So I felt a little bad. So I pushed it to next year. And then it was on how to be a gentleman. I was just like, I don't mind missing a day of this. That's fine. I'm going to go see my episode. <laughs> I, I can miss a day of how to be a gentleman. And that's, that's why the show was canceled. canceled. That's yeah. why it was canceled. There you go. <laughs> uh, didn't you never get to go on the vacation, though, that you won? I couldn't. I did. I booked the vacation, so I had to pay taxes on it. But I went. My agents assured me on our next job <laughs> that uh, the, our new bosses knew about it, that I could go on this trip. Then I got there and I said, obviously, no, I'm taking this trip for a week. And they said, what trip? What trip are you taking? I said, none. I'm not taking a trip. Never mind. And so I canceled. <laughs> that also feels like something of the past, too. Like on at least on Solar, like we're always like, go, just tell us. You know what I mean? Like, the no, idea- we did it. Josh, we did that on the big show with Brian Bradley. Who- Brian Bradley yeah. literally missed the first two weeks of production because he had a cruise book. Like. <laughs> the idea that you can't live your life is ridiculous. Now. You said that on Happy Endings. We'll That's be a Josh by we'll That's a, Live your life is a Josh Bicellism. No, uh, it's only one minute. Doesn't live your life. It was, it was a show. We'll be fine. Yeah. yeah, it was. We'll be fine. Yeah, we'll be fine. That was a Bill Lawrence. <laughs> I will give him credit then, because like early on, you would worry if you had two doctor's appointments in a week, you would stress for weeks about, oh my god, I'm going to ask to leave early. Twice in a week, I can't do that. And I will give Bill credit in his Bill way. Of, he, you would see like, listen, I really, I'm going to miss today because I have to go do this. And he would just be like, we'll be okay. to let you go, but also at the same time, immediately showing that you didn't matter at all. It can come through though sometimes. Like it's because it's especially younger writers who are yes. scared about asking for time, like terrified. Like this is my first job. I cannot ask for a day off. And like, if somebody were to nicely say like, Hey, you know what? Take all the time you need. You'd be like, I'm suspicious. But if somebody's like, we'll be fine without you. You're like, oh, I think I can take this. I can take this. <laughs> it was it was super handy as the writer's assistant to take eight days off for Thanksgiving every year. Which was really <laughs> nice. I believe in October. I remember. I, 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 I believe in October. Yeah. <laughs> but I was terrified because when I first started, you know, at Happy Endings and it shows how cool you guys were. But I was terrified because I had jury duty and it was like, great, I'm going to miss a week of work with two weeks in, I'm going to like miss all the fun and the friendship. It's going to be weird. And uh, I could not get out of it. And I missed work for a week and everyone was cool about it and just made fun of me afterwards after. So it was just like, this this is why if you have a writing partner, you, this is the way to do it because they just go to work while you're off on game shows and doing jury. It's <laughs> split your salary, but it's totally worth it. Yeah. I, I do I do want to touch about, you know, touch on some of the other issues that have that are being spoken about quite frequently as the the WGA enters its now seventh week uh, of the strike. I mean, you know, Amy, you brought this up earlier, the the AI component of of this all. I mean, how much of a threat do you think using AI like have you guys thought about how you would particularly use it? I mean, is this a first draft? Is this a not at all? Like, where do you guys fall on that? And Amy, we can start with you because since you brought so effectively brought it up. I mean, sure. I 
I mean, I keep hearing this example about like, well, one day you'll have a story problem be like, I need three different ways this scene could end. And you just tap, tap, tap it into the AI machine. and You get all these ideas. And I'm like, <laughs> isn't that what writers are for? That, to me, it's like every example where a writer could use AI, I'm like, I'd rather talk to a person and spitball and bounce back and forth and come up with something even better. Um, so yeah, I, I know that, you know, there are rumors that like Paramount is building script writing software and I'm sure it, they are, but I also am sort of like, yeah, to make things that aren't very good. So that, that I don't, I know it's a threat, but I'm also like, do we, it's not a threat today, but we have to protect for it today because one day it will actually be really good. It It's coming. So we can't be the people at the Ford plant saying no to the robots on the, on the line. So it, it, it is coming and we are, it's up to us to figure out how we can use it to our benefit. The ironic thing is, I think if I was a director, they punted the whole thing. I mean, AI could easily make a shot list and make a, you know, it feels like in yes. a lot of ways, there's more things that assistant directors, which make up a huge piece of the DGA, like their jobs. The funny mm -hmm. thing is they fully punted on it and said, we'll discuss it in three years. If I was them, I'd be way more worried about it. That I know the actors clearly because of the deep fake stuff, but I think Amy's right. Like we have to figure out how to use it. And maybe it is an outline thing or a story area thing, which everyone hates writing anyway, but or but honestly having helping keep the Bible in some ways on a on a really, you know, dense show. But we are going to have to figure it out. But it's just to me, it was ironic that the DGA totally didn't even deal with it. I thought it. that too. When I uh -huh. think they're remember the network is mostly it's not the D it's the DGA is not all Steven Spielberg and Robert Zemeckis. Like most of those people are DPs and ADs and you know. I've been really getting into Chad GPT. This is Hillary. I don't know if you guys are are into playing around with it, but I really don't want to be the last person to understand it and just be, you know, standing on a street corner being like, it's coming for us and not know <laughs> what it is. Um, so um, it's been really interesting for research and stuff like, and it's really just really good Google at this point. So I do invite anybody who has not explored it to explore it because I think there I think we need to use it as a tool and there is some use. I don't think it's gonna be writing for us or doing a good job. I wouldn't certainly wouldn't trust it to write a story area. Um, I mean, you know, depending on uh, on your level of, of comfortability with how good that story area is, <laughs> but you know, maybe it could be good for some people. But um, you know, it's it's just interesting, and I think we we do have to try to figure out how we're going to incorporate it because I do think it's going to be around. I mean, yeah. I can't imagine that AI would have had Max become an actual bear, which you guys actually. <laughs> well, did. maybe it would have. Maybe that's the <laughs> argument. <laughs> that's an argument for AI. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it may have. Caught the frittata mistake. So. It would have caught the frittata mistake. Oh my God, you're right. Wait, is Leela AI? <laughs> I think I, I'm a little, I have been a little naive. And I would say like six months ago, even as we knew these talks were approaching, like I was so like, there's no way AI can do anything close to what we do. And I still believe that's true. But I was terrified by the studio's response where they were like, we're not going to even discuss yeah. this. And I'm like, uh-oh, that's bad. <laughs> I think that they're right. like, no, we're comfortable saying we do not even want to budge on that. And it's like, oh, gosh, you like, I guess that's our building shit. To it's economics. Sure. It's economics. They are going to I mean, the way it's going to work is they're going to have a shitty, you know, template 
boilerplate AI thing. And then they're going to say, make this, we know we need you, but we only need yeah, three make it of better. You. Yeah. yeah. We, need, we need three yeah. of you and rewrite the AI thing. And, and that, that does everything. That's why they're stuck on the minimum room size too. They want to get it down to like the minimum number of people that they can. And that's a way to do it, which is to like, you're reacting basically to a terrible writer's draft and, you know, and you have three people, um, Right, rewriting it, and that they're just fine with that, and that's or they just type in, or the network just types in their notes to Chat GPT or whatever, and they rewrite it that way. Yeah, that's my thing: is how are they not getting replaced? Like network notes feel like the most Chat BT ish thing ever. They're getting they're getting replaced. They're getting replaced. I'm very tinfoil hat about AI. I hate it. I hate it all. I don't want any of it. Like I know I should probably learn and try to use it. I just think that like. Everyone knows it's easier for six people to room write a, a draft than to get a bad draft in and have to rewrite it. It just sounds like more freaking work for the humans. And I don't understand how it's actually going to save us any time until it gets smarter and I guess replaces us. My problem with AI is that it's a regurgitation of everything that's come before us, right? So if you're looking at Native American representation, that's fucking terrifying because whatever it bleep blorps out is not going to be anything close to something that me or all the Native writers that I've hired or worked with can offer, right? So if you're using it to you know, create certain types of content, I guess it probably will be somewhat seamless. I still don't think it will be. But like when it comes to writing stuff that's remotely specific... It really bothers me that, like, right when brown people got a chance to start making shit and being in charge is right when the robots come. Like, you got to be freaking kidding me. I don't know. It just, it makes me so angry that everyone thinks, like, this is innovation when it really just feels like the same thing that we always have to deal with, like, every 10 years. And it's it's a regurgitation of people who write a lot on the internet. And so it's like, I don't want <laughs> yeah. like there are some people writing good things on the internet and then there's a lot of people writing really horrible stuff. on. 99.9% of the stuff on the internet is still terrible. So I don't want that to be the, and even as like a human writer, sometimes you're like, Oh, did I come up with that joke or shoot? Did I hear that joke on something else? And I wouldn't want to get a draft in where you're like, were these jokes just from something else entirely? Like, right. That's yeah. well, plagiarism. Joke is from a family guy. We're like, that's uh, Casablanca. Yeah. yeah, exactly. On Chad GPT, like, you know, I asked it, like, about a restaurant in LA, like, has this opened, you know, or, or what are the hours of this restaurant? And then it said, oh, that restaurant is in Boston. And I was like, oh, I think your information is outdated. And then it said, oh, sorry, my information only is current of, like, 2017. <laughs> so then I'm just like, <laughs> but, like, exactly, right? But so then... To be it's fair, like, Hill. It was a Chili's. I love Hillary that was timing the Chad GPT. Like I would never go to that restaurant. <laughs> you know, r- wrapping up here, um, quick question for everyone. How many of you are also DGA members? Six of you are also DGA members. So about half here. Um, what do you guys think of, of the DGA deal and how are, how are you voting? If you feel emboldened enough to share here. I'll say in particular, this is Amy. I'm like, I'm not gonna, I'm like still undecided because I feel like so much of the communication in the WGA has done so much better than the DGA. Like they've just been like, they were silent for so long and then they're like, celebrate this win. And it's kind of like, wait, I, I don't even know where we started. I don't know what we agreed to. And it feels weird that the contract was ratified like two what was it like 48 hours before SAG? Like if you had just waited two yeah. days and you got that strike authorization vote, like who knows what the DGA could have gotten. So it just, 
it feels very like enshrouded in mystery, which makes me feel like very undecided. Yeah, I don't like what they I don't like what they did. I don't I don't like it at all. Like I'm definitely probably skewing towards no. Um I and the and the DGA is notorious for not striking too. I think the longest strike they have was like three hours or something. <laughs> um, so, so they just they just play it. and I, I agree with the buy I think they should be more worried in terms of like hey can you put a camera here and just at, at a base level just match cut just get the basic coverage I think that's a much more concerning thing than like trying to farm ideas from people's histories and backstories that grow up in very specific environments so I, I just didn't like how it was handled I thought it was handled very poorly and, and not transparent in a lot of ways and I, know, I felt a little soft to me I agree this is Jonathan Groff I, I kind of agree I'm inclined to and I've been following the lead of some people, you know, who've been outspoken about it, who I trust and whose instincts and sort of analysis of it, analysis of it, I trust. I understand it's going to probably approve, be approved overwhelmingly because so many ADs just want to work. And I agree they made a mistake on AI. I agree they didn't exert enough leverage. And even some of the things are galling. I'll be honest, like building an extra day in for directors to do a directors to do a director's cut in television off of producer notes with all due respect we i love television directors but give me your cut and let me edit it and the (laughs) fact that the studios are willing to spend money on that because that's going to add money and cost to post-production and the fact that they actually took the hit on that when literally that day of post-production could pay for another writer you know, something that it, we're asking for that is necessary, that is also, essential, that has been part of it. are onto something else. They don't even yeah, they don't do it. To, they, uh, they don't yeah. even necessarily want it. And to be honest, like nobody knows the show as well as the showrunner or the person you designated to edit on a day on a regular basis, and your editor. And I appreciate the director's cut. I always get great ideas from it, but that producer's cut is so much more important. So, in any way to affect a showrunner's time or to pad out the schedule to do another meaningless cut. I'm sorry, but I'm just going to say it. It's not particularly meaningful. By the way, the deadline for handing in the episode is not going to move by a day. That part. It's not yeah. going to get pushed by a day. So really what's going to happen is it's just going to come. Well, I mean, I'm, sh- I, I, I mean, in the I case of the endings, we were handing them in, you know, like literally they were, I don't even know what the analogy would be, but like still hot when they were airing. Like then they either were scenario, like, you either know, scenario we them in on Thursday night, you know, and and they would air like two days Friday later. Once it did, oh, yeah, so they, they would air the on Thursday night. You know? the <laughs> then either either scenario was really bad, right? Because either you're taking time away from the showrunner or you know the lead a writing editor who's working with an editorial, or you're throwing money into a schedule and wasting it, honestly. Like, I don't want to disrespect directors, but like, you've had your director's cut. That's great. Let's move on. I think all a lot of this stuff comes down to like, um, and it's baffling, I think, as a writer, but there was, there's like an old quote or saying or something that, uh, forgive me if it was like Woody Allen or something that said it, but um, that like, <laughs> that no one comes out of, like, no one comes out of seeing like, uh, uh, like symphony or something or or like or or even and says like oh i would have done this i would have done that i would have done this but everybody watches a tv show or a movie and says oh i would have written it this way i would have written it that way you know what i mean so i think there is just like sort of a general feeling of i could do that if i had time to you know when it comes to like the writing profession um across the board i mean i'm sure everyone on here has so many like 
family members and friends and stuff who like when you talk to them they they talk to you as if like your job is truly like they could do it if they weren't so busy with their job or something like that you know what I mean? uh you know everyone's got a script you know everyone's got a script anyway and that feels like that just that's the like underlying problem of all of it is there's just like a general feeling that like writing is is nothing when when it really is at the core of of all of this entertainment. I mean, it's, it's like there's restaurants based on ideas from writers and movies, you know, um, talking of course about Bubba Gump shrimp. Sure. sure, sure. <laughs> what are some other ones? What are My some number other one ones? <laughs> um, it's, it's Hillary, but one of the things that's come up a couple of times, but we haven't, you know, explicitly discussed is that we were writing happy endings as it was shooting. And one of the problems with the streaming things too, is that like, we needed people right then and there because it was happening, you know, and it's like, it allows you because they feel the same pressure that we feel. Now the pressure has been transferred to us that are up against deadlines that they say are not changeable, even though the show isn't airing for months and months. Um, And so all the pressure goes to us when they're feeling the pressure, like this is airing next week, all of a sudden there's more money, there's more resources. We'll get another writer in there. You can hire somebody else. Uh, You know, Oh, the guest cast fell out. Like we can find somebody, we can find more money. We can find breakage, you know, all of a sudden they're willing to work with you. And so now that that's gone on a lot of shows, it, it, you know, we don't have the same partner in the same position we're in. I just want to point out really quickly and at the WGA, by the way, has a really reasonable proposal that is not cost prohibitive to address what Hillary's talking about, even in, you know, a show where you write it mostly ahead of time and take a break before production. They have ways of addressing that, that are reasonable proposals that the AAPTP has not engaged on. And they need to, because that that's just going to make the shows better. And just a sort of a, a light place to, to wrap up. Um, you guys know as well as anyone that we are in a world in which everything is getting rebooted or constantly being talked about getting rebooted. And there have definitely been rumors about more happy endings, episodes, new happy endings, episodes, movies, etc. How often do you guys think in terms of, Oh, of course that's a penny storyline or that's an Alex storyline or the characters are now all 15 years older. What are the storylines that we could bring out there? How often do you guys think in terms of this is a world we would like to return to? Yeah, and is honestly, is Dave still wearing V-necks? That's my big question. <laughs> that's that's your <laughs> <laughs> I, I can just say, having gone, having done doing this podcast, which now I'm sure Casey's going to be very mad that I said anything about it, but we interviewed most people, and we are doing one that's going to be sort of a special little thing. Uh, and having gone back and watched, so you can get. I mean, thank God for for YouTube or whoever allowed it, there's so everything's on there and you can go into such a, a, a happy endings hole so quickly. It's on Hulu, dude. Don't give YouTube. Well, money. it's on everywhere. Actually, isn't it on Netflix <laughs> and it's Hulu on Netflix and, and Hulu, Max yeah. too? Like, yeah, when it's so in demand, you know, they, they put it on show. all the places at once. <laughs> I will so, say though, it's I actually stopped, a better deal to be like, you know, everyone can have it. Um, that is the answer to the question of will it get rebooted, frankly, because we do get asked that a lot. And it, there just simply is not enough people that want to see it. It is a very vocal group, which I and I would not want any other group of fans in the world. But it just seems to not quite be enough people for a place to actually put up the many millions of dollars. We, we've also done two reunion. The one we did, the Zoom during the pandemic, 
I think was one of the best things we've done. Uh, I, I love that episode. A good cat of everybody. Yeah. So the answer is the next time there's a worldwide shutdown, lockdown pandemic, we'll do another. Sooner than you think. It can be sooner than I'm working on along with AI. So hopefully soon. Oh, this is Lon, by the way. And uh, 9-11 was a hoax. That is is not Lon. That is Josh. (laughs) Well, guys, this has been an absolute blast. I think that's a, a fantastic note to end on. Thank you all so very much for your willingness to, to, take this stroll down memory lane and talk about the issues that uh, ring true today. Thank you, Leslie. Thank, thank you, you, Daniel. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, guys. And thank you, Sierra. Thank you, seeing thank everyone. You, Sierra. Thanks, Sierra. Good seeing you guys. Happy Endings is now streaming in its entirety on Hulu and apparently, according to that conversation, absolutely anywhere you happen to stream your television programming. This feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. Those things do help spread the word of mouth. Come say hi to us on Twitter. We're always happy to hear what works, what doesn't work, etc. If you have questions, though, for future mailbag segments, you can email us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the numeral 5, at THR.com. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.